Amen. You're going to always get some excitement out of Corey the Amport. Praise God. Amen. Praise God. I want to point you guys uh, to, to a very, very, very tough text for us this morning uh, because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't end happy. All right. And, and, and sometimes we struggle with with texts that don't end on happy notes. This is a text that doesn't end on, on a happy note. Um, and, and, and before before we even kind of journey into that, I want to talk a little bit about parents. I want to talk a little bit about parents. I'm 40 years old, so I'm getting to the point where I'm beginning to kind of experience this. Um, even in my life and even in, this, in, even in the stories that I share with my children. But, but I remember, um, I, and you probably remember this in, in, in either your aunt's life, your auntie or your uncle or your parents, mother, father, whomever you, you, whomever you had close relationships with growing up. But, but their stories are always, always, they carry a, a, a sense of grandeur, right? There, there's like, you know, there's the story about when they used to go to school, they didn't even need buses, right? It's like, hey, when I when we went to school, man, we walked, you know, eight miles uphill, yeah, both ways in the snow, you know. And so, I mean, what you what y'all fussing about buses for now? You know what I mean? Get on the bus, you know. When I man, when I was your age, we didn't even have clothes, you know. We just just wrapped up in some some hay some hay skirts and and and, and a hay shirt and just went outside and just. Went with what we had. What are you worried about what you're wearing for? I mean, all the stories are like most of the times big and, and, and grand, right? And I, and I find myself telling those stories to my kids even now. You know, it's, it's like, what, you know, what are you fussing about math for? Man, when I was your age, we had to do five chapters in five hours. It was like, no, we didn't. But it, it, but it feels that way, you know what I mean? And so, and so I realized that they weren't just necessarily lying to me. It was just, it, fe- it feels that way. And so now I'm sharing these stories with my kids as well. And, and, and sometimes I, I, don't, I don't tend to share the bad stories as much as I share the good ones. And, and, and it's, a, it's a similar problem that you experience even, even in this country. I mean, we, we have a tendency to share the, the good stories about our country. And because of that, we are struggling now in our country because some of the bad stories are starting to bubble to the surface in very detailed ways. And so now some of the younger people that are coming behind us are starting to think, is there any hope for our country? And yes, there's hope. Of course there's hope. But, but, but it's the same thing that happens when, whenever we share all the good stories. It's when we share all the good stories and the bad stories start coming to the surface, people lose faith in the story itself, right? They lose faith in the story. And... This is what I love about the Christian faith, is that the Christian faith does not hide the bad stories. And so one of the, one of the clearest defenses of the faith, one of the clearest apologetics for the faith is the fact that the faith, or, or at least the, the, the narrative of the faith, does not leave the bad out. It's one of the reasons why you can trust our faith even more is because it does not leave the bad out. It gives you the bad story. And so here there's a story that, that we're going to look at that, that is supposed to be supporting this, 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 uh, this account that, that the author Luke is writing about. He's writing about some amazing things that are happening in the church, right? He's writing about some spectacular things that the Spirit is doing in the church. And then he gives us two accounts, except he doesn't give us two good accounts. He gives us one good account, and he gives us one really, really, really bad account. And by him giving us both of those accounts, I think Luke in so many ways is helping us have confidence in in what God was doing. We can take confidence in what he was doing because he doesn't leave the bad out. It's not only sunny days. There are some 
clouds in the midst of this as well. So the first question I want to ask you as we look back to chapter 4, verse 32, is what does it look like when the Spirit is moving in God's church? What does it look like when the Spirit of God is moving in God's church? When we left last week, we, we left at verse 31. They were the, 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 the disciples of the church, the, the members of the early church were praying and they were praying that God would, 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 would continue to empower them to walk with boldness as they sought to make the name of Jesus Christ known. And the Lord was more than happy to grant their request. We look at verse 32 and we read this, and, or verse 31, we read this. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The church was given boldness, the boldness that they requested, in fact to continue speaking the word of God with power. But notice another important answer to their prayers. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So again, the question this morning that I want to start us with is, what does it look like for the church to move with the Spirit? What does it look like for the church to live in the fullness of the Spirit? And what should, we, what should we expect if God is fully moving amongst us? The next few verses give us a glimpse of that. In verse 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and one soul. So if the Spirit is moving in the church, then we should expect to see a Spirit-filled unity of heart. Since they were filled with God's Spirit, they were aligned in focus. They were aligned in passion. They were aligned and purpose. The Spirit of God causes us to take our eyes off of ourselves and set our eyes and our vision on God and on his will and on his mission. The Bible says elsewhere, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are living according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life. In peace. So if you've ever asked yourself, why is it that, that it seems like people outside of the church and in the world can sometimes be more united than people inside the church and belonging to Christ? The answer is quite simple. A lot more simple than we realize. They are more united in their aims than we are ours. See, here's a harsh and here's a very honest reality about Christianity sometimes is that we are won by the gospel, but we aren't concerned with the gospel. We are won by the gospel, but the gospel is sometimes not our primary aim. We are won by the gospel, but sometimes the gospel is not our primary focus, and therefore the unity around it can't be established. Does that make sense? See, most lapses in unity are caused when we part ways in focus, when we, when we, have, when we have a division in vision, Right? Either one of the parties or all of the parties have set their focus on something else rather than Christ. Whenever something else becomes ultimate in our lives and we set it above and beyond Jesus, you can be sure that it will impact our ability to sustain and build unity. Our political identities, our ethnic identities, our grabs for power, self-elevating uh, self power, our reaches for money, uh, or status or success are all tools to lead us 
farther away, not just from the gospel, but farther away from one another. So this group, by the power of the Spirit at work in their lives, were all carrying the same aim. Spreading the fame of Jesus Christ to all nations and obeying and displaying his glory to the world. This focus deepened their sense of unity with one another. But the Spirit did more than just unify them in purpose. The Spirit also, moving in them, gave them spirit-filled unity of hand. In verse 32, uh, the second half of verse 32, it says this. And no one said, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The Spirit empowered them to see their resources and their possessions in two very important ways. The first way is that they took on the mentality that their possessions were no longer theirs, that their possessions were God's. They didn't consider it their own. They considered it God's to do whatever he desired to do with it. But the second way was that they embraced the truth that they were now family, moving them to display compassion to one another and leaving one to go without their needs and, and, and never leaving one, rather, to go without their needs being met. They were family now. And so if there was anyone who was hungry, there was no way that person was going to go hungry. Does that make sense? Because they were family now. You being hungry is like my very own son being hungry. You being thirsty is like my very own daughter being thirsty, my very own brother, my very own sister being thirsty, and I won't let you go in there. See, our generosity is going to be directly shaped and dictated by these two truths. Do we see what we've been given as tools given to us by God for the purpose of advancing his mission and caring for his family? And do we see each other as genuine family? It's going to dictate how we share. It's going to dictate our generosity. Nothing tests our commitment to the ideal of family more than the call to care for each other like family, right? Generosity moves our unity from a concept to an actual experience. Does that make sense? Now, before I move away from this, I want to share a few caveats. First of all, generosity, the generosity that we see in this text is not an appeal to a governmental system over uh, one of, over the other. Some people want to make this about a political argument. They want to talk about how this was uh, socialism. Or some people will say, no, it's not socialism because it's, maybe it's capitalism because they talk about if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. It's neither. It's just how life in the church is supposed to be governed. Does that make sense? It's not trying to argue for your political positions. But this generosity is not forced. This, gen this generosity is actually voluntary. It said in verse 34 that there is not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each one as any had need. Luke records this, this, this moment of substantial, substantial giving, but you don't hear anything about such giving being mandatory. In fact, this appears to be generosity that is led by people with means, people with houses to give and, or houses to sell and property to sell. We know these are the people that the apostles encouraged to be liberal in their giving because Paul encourages Timothy to encourage them to do such. 
When he writes his first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul tells the, uh, Timothy to tell the people that are rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to think too much of themselves, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And, he did, and then he tells Timothy to tell them that they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you hear that? Now we'll flesh this out a little bit more in just a second, all right? But understand that what's being given is substantial, but it is freely given. And then the third thing is that their generosity has purpose. In verse 34, it says again, there was not a needy person among them. Verse 35, it says, and they laid at the apostles' feet the finances that they received, and it was distributed to each as any had need. It is placed in their, the, 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 the placing of the money at the apostles' feet in this text is a gesture recognizing the authority of the apostles in the church. But more importantly, it's a gesture highlighting the apostles' responsibility to distribute to those who were in need rightly. In other words, it was, a, it was not simply a witness to the apostles' greatness. Was, that's not what it was about. But rather, it was recognizing the apostles' responsibility to be benevolent. Does that make sense? I need you to understand that because I've seen examples where people have kind of taken on this, this notion where you see people on TV televangelism sometimes and people are preaching and then the people are going and they're laying money at the preacher's feet to kind of demonstrate the preacher's greatness. And that, that's not what's happening here. They're showing, they're, they're demonstrating the, the, the responsibility that these men had to distribute to those who were in need. That doesn't mean preachers aren't worthy of receiving wages or salaries, and it doesn't mean that preachers can't be full-time. I know you guys say, well, you're bivocational, you're part-time, and, we, and we're not paying you that much. But listen, don't take that mentality out to other churches, okay? Don't say, well, well this is all our pastor makes, or he's working part-time, or he's working bivocational. Don't take that mentality to other churches, because that's not why we do what we do right now. Amen? We do what we do right now because we got to do what we do right now. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to have to make bread somewhere, folks. Amen? <laughs> and, so that's, and so that's what we do, and we'll do it as long as, God, as long as God permits us to do it. Amen? God permits us to be this size and to make this amount of money, then we'll take that money and we'll advance God's mission, and me and Corey will work our fingers to the bones outside of this uh, church establishment. Does that make sense? But that does not mean that we're going to talk bad about people that have been given the fortune to pay their pastor full time and all that, all that other thing. But that, at the same time, that does not mean that their pastor is supposed to be standing up and people are laying money at his feet so that he can put all that money in his pocket. That's not what this is supposed to be. The reason they put it at his feet was so, or at their feet was because they said, you guys hold the responsibility to be benevolent and to share and to determine who is in need amongst us. So we're giving it to our leaders, and our leaders are not going to hoard it and keep it. Our leaders are going to give it to the people that are in need around us. Does that make sense? This brings me to the last caveat, is that this generosity was not reserved for those not trying. 
In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, there's a very important scripture for us to take heed to. And it says this, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but just simply busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So Paul was writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he was saying that, that, that if there are people amongst you that are simply preoccupied with the lives of others or preoccupied in vices and addictions, or if there is one who is simply not pursuing opportunities available to them, or if there is one who is simply, uh, simply doesn't have because they are, in fact, just living inactive, lazy, sluggish lives. He says, then they don't eat. That's tough. But that is how the generosity of the early church was shaped. In other words, they were helping those that were in need, but that were seeking to do, right? Not just simply in need, but not doing anything. Does that make sense? Now, now obviously, we take into account disabled. We take into account you know, uh, all other situations and particular circumstances. Each situation is built on its own merit, all right? So it doesn't mean that if a person doesn't have money, they deserve not to have money and the church shouldn't be helping them. That's not what they're saying, right? What they're saying is that if they have the means and the ability and the opportunities afforded to them and they are not taking heed to them, then the church shouldn't be enabling that by supporting them continually. Does that make sense? So, Spirit-filled unity of heart, spirit-filled unity of hand, and then spirit-filled unity of mouth and feet. It says, with great power, the apostles, in verse 33, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So what is Christian unity really all about if there is no gospel witness to go with it? Our unity serves as witness and thus must be used to advance our witness. One of the main reasons Christ offers unity to the church is so that that unity may be displayed to the world as a visible proclamation of the gospel that we believe. Pay special attention to what they are speaking in verse 33. It says that they were talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you were with us last week, then you remember that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the very thing that got them in trouble. That the Sadducees were not believers in anything dealing with resurrection. That when the soul died or when the body died, the Sadducees believed that the soul died. And so the idea that they were preaching the resurrection was what got them arrested in the first place. And now that they've been released, these men have told them, do not talk about Jesus anymore. They told these men, Whatever, and then now they're going about, and what are they doing? Preaching about the very thing that got them arrested the first place, in the first place. Also, remember what Jesus promised us in Acts chapter 1. It says in verse 8 of chapter 1 that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And what is that power being used for? To be my witnesses, Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so the power that they received was for the purpose of witnessing. And so in unity, we go and we make the gospel known through our witness in word and in work. 
But through unity, the gospel is made known as the world witnesses through us a genuine love and affection for each other. And that, and that genuine sacrifice of our power and that genuine sacrifice of our possessions for the sake of another. And that shows the world that there must be something different about these people. Does that make sense? Luke decides to dive deeper into the life of the church by giving us two examples, two examples we talked about earlier. Now, what's interesting is that he doesn't give us, as I mentioned, two perfect examples. He gives us a good example, a really good example, and then he gives us a, a not-so-good example. The first example, the positive example, is found in verse 36. It says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement or exhortation, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas couldn't be a better example of what God is doing in the early church. He is nicknamed the son of encouragement or the son of exhortation is another way to translate it. He exhorts people. He inspires people with the gift, of, with the gift that God has given him. He points them to Jesus and he inspires them to go after Jesus. Barnabas was a unifier. When the apostle Paul was first saved um, and, and first came to Jesus, it tells us in Acts chapter 9 that people were scared of him. That nobody wanted to talk to him, nobody wanted to hang out with him, nobody wanted to disciple him except for Barnabas. It says Barnabas was the only one that took him in and then brought him to the other apostles and declared to them what, had, what happened with Paul. Barnabas befriended him when nobody else would. He became a friend to the friendless. There's another story in the early church where, where, where persecution drives the church out from Jerusalem and, and they begin to go to different places. And one of those places is Antioch. And many of the people that go there, they first start just talking to the Jewish people. But then a group from Cyprus, which is Barnabas', Barnabas hometown, and Cyrene, a, 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 a little location in Africa, they get to Antioch and they start talking to everybody, not just Jewish people. And so there begins to be this revival where God is moving amongst Jewish people and God is moving amongst the non-Jews. And now they got to come together and, and, and word gets all the way back to the church of Jerusalem. And who do they send back to handle this complicated situation? Barnabas. And Barnabas takes a very complicated situation, a situation that could self-destruct if it's handled wrongly. And the Bible tells us that as a result of his presence, as a result of what he brings, as a result of the Spirit of God moving through him, that more souls were added once he arrived. Barnabas was everything that his nickname said he was. So we shouldn't be surprised that this is the man that Luke uses as the key example in chapter 4 of Acts. He's the example of spirit-empowered, spirit-filled, selfless living. We see his tremendous heart on display because he sells a, land, a property that he owns in order to make provision for those that are in need. Barnabas was a worker in the temple. The Bible says he was a Levite, which means he was an assistant to the priest. But unlike some of the religious officials in that day whose religion didn't shape their life and shape their love 
towards one another's and towards neighbor, Barnabas's faith was on fire in such a way that his faith shaped how he loved people. He was generous to those who were in need. He was risking friendship with the friendless. He was sharing the gospel and being a dependable uniter of people. He was embodying the ministry so powerfully that his nickname uh, was uh, that his nickname represented. Let me ask you a question. If the apostles had time to be here and they had time to observe your Christian life, if they had time to watch you pursue God, if they had time to watch you love your neighbor, if they had an opportunity to see you share the gospel and make disciples of the people around you, if they had an opportunity to sacrificially or watch you sacrificially share your time and your talent and your treasure, with the saints of God, what would they nickname you? What would they nickname you? They nicknamed this man the son of exhortation. They nicknamed him son of encouragement because they said when he was around, people just got better. People were inspired. People were moved to continue to go after God when he was present. What would they nickname you? See, Luke in his first example is saying it loud and clear. Be a Barnabas, right? Be one whose words match their life. So if that's the positive example, what's the negative example? Chapter 5, verse 1, it says a, na a man named Ananias his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Luke has been telling us that we got people all over the place that are selling goods, and, and we got Barnabas, this great example, this man who's encouraging people and who's being friend, friends to friendless people and, and who's sharing the gospel and, and who's inspiring others to live out the gospel. And then he gives us these two, this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And he tells, and he tells us that, that they sold a piece of property too. Now notice that they only sold a piece of the property and nothing indicates that them selling all of their property was a requirement. They sold a piece of their property. We'll come back to that in a second. Notice that in that scheme that they've concocted, that they sold a piece of the property, they were given proceeds from that piece of the property that they sold. But then they tell the church that they sold or that the proceeds that they're giving the church is all of the proceeds from their selling of the piece of the property. While they knowingly hold back proceeds from that sale. Notice that it wasn't just the husband that was aware of this scheme, but it was also the wife that was aware of this scheme in selling this property. In other words, both of them were culpable. That's important too. So they sell a piece of their property and then they share a piece of the proceeds of that sale and then they tell the apostles that this is everything that, this is the proceeds from our sale that we just recently conducted. And then we get to verse three. 
Excuse me. And it says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Skipping down to verse 5, when Ananias, I'm sorry, skipping down to the, the latter part of verse 4, it says, you have not lied to man but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what, literally, what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And, and she said, yes, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how has it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard these things. So let me just say something before, before I, before I kind of wrap this up with a few thoughts on them. First of all, this is New Testament. Just need you guys to see that, all right? You know, because sometimes we kind of make this distinction between Old Testament and New Testament. It's like Old Testament, that was very mean God, striking people dead. New Testament, very nice God. He doesn't do anything like that. This is New Testament, guys. Same God. He's nice. Still nice. And he still judges harshly if you play with him, right? I mean, he, he can still judge if you play with him. He is not to be trifled with. In other, words, in other words, just because we are now in New Testament doesn't mean that we are now serving a God to be trifled with. Does it make sense? This is New Testament that we're talking about. But, but, but what in the world just happened? Did they both just get struck dead because they were stingy? Is that, is that what this is about? That's not the issue. Listen to Peter in verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Peter's words in common day layman terms is this. This was yours. You didn't have to give us one dime of it if you didn't want to. You could choose another way to use this money. The property was yours. The money that you made from the property was yours. So there was no requirement in the early church to go or forcing everybody to sell everything they had and give. That's not the purpose here. That's not what's happening here. You didn't have to give us any of it. People were freely giving to the cause. So again, what happened? Verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. The latter part of verse 4, it says, you have not lied to man. Lied to God. Folks, the problem wasn't generosity. It was hypocrisy. You see, they wanted to be known for something that they were not. They wanted to make themselves appear great. 
they wanted to outshine the God that they claimed to be giving to. They wanted people to look at them and say, man, did you see how much A&S gave? Whoo! <laughs> Ain't no way I could do that. Man, you guys are awesome. Yeah. You know, just trying to obey the Lord. That's what they were looking for. Instead of allowing their sufficiency to rest in the God that they were giving to. Instead of having the willingness simply to say, hey, man, we just saw a piece of it and um, we kept, you know, we kept some of it because we got some bills to pay. Um, but hey, man, we pray, we pray this is, this is going to serve, serve people in need. That's all they could have said. That's all they had to say. But in instead, what did they do? Look at how much money we gave. Yeah, all, every single bit. Yeah, man. Yeah, it was tough. It was really tough. It's really tough for us to sell it. And you just don't know, man, how much prayer and how much fasting and, man, we had to move some things around, you know, to make this happen. But here, here you go, man. It's, every, it's everything. See, folks, the opposite of hypocrisy is not perfection. The opposite of hypocrisy is authenticity. No, I'm not perfect. But I'm pursuing a God who is perfect. It's the ability to pursue that God rightly. Not to live under some illusion that you're trying to create to make yourself look great. To make yourself look known. Not to say, not to be something that you aren't before God in order to try to gain favor amongst men. But to be who you are, even if, you, even if who you are is not all that great. Are you tracking? Even if who you are is not where you want to be yet. And let, let, me, let, me, let me share this as well. The opposite of hypocrisy is not hiding behind imperfection either. And so the opposite of hypocrisy is not, well, you know, nobody's perfect, so I'm just going to... That's not being honest before God. Because God knows that even you yourself aren't even pursuing him. Does that make sense? And so when you tell people, well, you know, I'm just not perfect, and so I just kind of do whatever... You, I mean, you know, I mean, th this is why I do things, because I'm not... God knows that you aren't pursuing him. God knows that Ananias and Sapphira aren't pursuing him. They aren't giving to him. And so, yeah, they may have been able to fool everybody in the room that day, but they didn't fool God. And so living a life of authenticity means that we go to God with what we got. And we say, Lord, here I am. And Lord, listen, man, I'm, I'm stingy sometimes. And I'm selfish sometimes. Sometimes I'm not that great of a husband. Sometimes I'm not that great of a wife. Lord, this is me. But Lord, you're great. And I know that I found grace in the death of your son. 
I know that I found forgiveness through his work. And I know that I found help in your spirit. So Lord God, help me be what I'm not today. When I fail, may I fall in you in order that I may be picked back up and pursue this again. No, I'm not perfect, but I'm pursuing a God who is. And through his death, I'm being perfected more and more every day. No, I'm not satisfied with being okay or, or not being okay. I want God to transform me. I want God to continue to work on me. I want God to continue to, 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 to drive me to hate sin. To hate not, not just simply other sin, but to hate my own. If I don't give as I ought, Lord, help me learn to give like I should. But don't give me, don't get me to the point where I'm living this life, this fantasy before everybody else and pretending to give that it's something that I'm not giving. Pretending to be somebody who I'm not. In an effort to get people to look at me and think that I'm great rather than look at you and find you great. See, what happened simply in this story was the, was the age-old seeking to rob and snatch God of his glory. That's all that happened. Just in that simple lie, there was an attempt to rob him of glory. But folks... Luke tells us this story to say, don't be like them. Be like Barnabas. To live a life bare before God, pursuing him, going after him, sharing of your time, your talent, your treasure. Not so people will look at you and admire you, but so that people will look at your God and embrace him. Be like Barnabas, amen? And when we fail, rest in Jesus. Trust him yet again. Find power in his spirit. Embrace what he's given us through his spirit to pursue yet again his ways. That's the Christian pursuit, amen? amen? That's what life in the early church looked like when they were walking in the spirit. And so may we pursue to that end, amen, for his glory, amen? Amen, amen. let's pray. Lord, we love you.